Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to read briefly from Ephesians chapter 1. And I'm going to read verses 3 through 14. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. The Apostle Paul here is writing to the church in Ephesus of the wonderful things that God has done through His Son and Spirit in order to save us. This is one of those passages where he's just like one after another, and he did this, and he did this, and he did this, and it's this great big long list of all the awesome things God has done to save us. And it should leave us kind of like overwhelmed, like he did all that for me. And and Ephesians is, is meant in this passage to stir up this spirit of gratitude to God for his grace. In a moment, we're going to turn over to Psalm 117. So, you ready for that? That's our sermon passage, Psalm 117. But first, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. 3 through 14. Hear again the word of the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his, the glory of his grace, by which he accepted us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Amen. There is in this little passage both structure and flow. The structure is the Trinity. That first little section, verses 3 through 6, Paul is laying out largely the work of God in electing, foreknowing, calling, and so on. God the Father. Secondly, in verses 7 through 12, he's focusing largely on the work of the Son, his redemption, his blood, his forgiveness of sins. But then thirdly, in verses 13 and 14, he makes explicit reference to the Spirit who seals us and guarantees us in the salvation. And yet, hopefully, as you are listening to not only my mispronunciations, but my attempts to emphatically hit a certain preposition that the Apostle Paul loves in... There is a refrain throughout all three paragraphs. In him. In him. In him. 
As you have heard me say many times before, and I trust you will hear me say many times again, there is no salvation outside of Christ. There is no piece of salvation outside of Christ. There is no element or component of salvation outside of Christ. All that the Father has done, he has done in Christ. All that the Spirit is doing, he is doing in Christ. All that we are and all that we are becoming is in Christ. With that in mind, turn back to Psalm 117. We've been preaching in this brief sermon series to the Egyptian Hallels. Those psalms which say hallelujah, hence Hallel. They say hallelujah specifically for the Exodus. They look back on that event under Moses in which Israel came up out of Egypt through the Red Sea, through the wilderness, through the Jordan, into the land of promise. That historical event serves as a backdrop for these psalms, the Egyptian Hallels. Psalm 117, then, is our next Egyptian Hallel. It presents an interesting phenomenon. The first is that it is the shortest chapter in the entire Bible. It is the shortest psalm. It is but two verses. And it's not Paul's verses from Ephesians chapter 1, which constitutes the longest sentence in the Bible. The dude didn't use a period after a hundred words. This psalm is the exact opposite of Ephesians chapter 1. Not in theme, but in length. It is very, very short. And so now you are under the apprehension of one of two possibilities. The first is that I will turn Puritan on you and make the shortest chapter in the Bible the longest sermon I have ever preached. The other is that my apprehension... I will run out of things to say long before my allotted time is up. And yet, I think what we find when we come to Psalm 117 is that it sits as something of a symmetric capstone in the Egyptian Hallels and pulls together in a climactic fashion all the themes that have gone before it so that it is my genuine hope that at the end of this sermon we will both find that it is exactly the right length for what it is doing. So let's look together. Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud Him, all you peoples. For His merciful kindness is great toward us. And the truth of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Amen. And amen. As Tim and Tom can now testify, thanks to yesterday's and Friday's travels to White Lake, there are four silos on my childhood farm. And on those four silos, one of them has a caged ladder that goes up the side and goes to a walkway across the top that is likewise covered in in an aluminum or steel cage. When we were young My brothers and I would sneak out of the house at night. Sorry, Mom. And uh, as we would sneak out of the house at night, actually, they probably knew and just ignored it. What were we going to do? We were on a farm. What we would do sometimes is we would go to those silos in the middle of the night, and we would climb up that ladder to the top of the silo, and we would stretch out on on the roof of the silo, and we would look up 
at the night sky and just sit there and in silence stare at the starlight. And there are two extraordinary memories that, that stick with me from that. The first is the intense and agonizing terror I experienced as one who is afraid of heights. Climbing up the side of a ladder on the side of a silo to lay on a roof and look at the stars. The other thing I remember very vividly is since we were on a farm out in the country, as Cynthia Ryland put it, there is no night so dark, so black as nights in the country. That sky stretched out from horizon to horizon in the deepest, thickest, it wasn't fully black, it was, it was this dark blue and there was texture to the color, you know what I mean? Like shades of lighter blue and darker blue and full black and, and, and this diversity to the sky. But what really actually stands in the memory is the way the starlight was piercing, cold and silver and bright. And as, as children, we would stare up into the light and I realized something so important. In the contrast of that night sky that we so seldom see here in the city, I realize there is no night so dark that the light of God cannot shine through it. A stunning illustration of the fact that there is in Christ such an abundance of glorious grace that there is not enough sin in the world to overcome it. There is not enough sorrow in your heart to overcome it. You see, good news for us this morning, beloved. The promise to us this morning in Psalm 117 is that Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough for you. And Jesus is enough for the world. Jesus is sufficient. Indeed, He is abundant. In His glory, in His grace, in His goodness. Beloved, Jesus is enough for the world. So let us pray together that others would know Him. Jesus is enough for the whole world. So let us pray for others to know Him. Look with me at the text for a moment. Notice at the beginning that in Psalm 117 verse 1, it says... Praise the Lord. This is our word, hallelujah. The psalm begins with the Hebrew, hallelujah. Praise the Lord. It says, secondly, in the next line, laud him. You may have a little footnote, as I do in the New King James. It's the same word, praise. So, praise the Lord. Praise him. This is the refrain that we have encountered throughout the Egyptian Hillel's. Psalm after psalm, this is the thrust in movement. Psalm 113. How do we go from barrenness to hallelujah? Psalm 114. How do we go from homelessness to hallelujah? How do we go, Psalm 115, from being orphans to saying hallelujah? Psalm 116. How do we go from being dead to singing hallelujah? There is this movement in each individual psalm designed to bring us to this exact place in Psalm 117.1. Hallelujah. 
The goal and thrust and focus of these psalms is to make of us a people who say hallelujah. Hallelujah. People who sing hallelujah. That we would be defined by this feature. In other words, Psalm 117 calls us to worship. And in this way, it is keeping precisely with all the psalms that have gone before it. We are called to worship. But I also think that there is a progression in the psalms that I've been trying to tease out as I preach through each individual psalm that leads us climactically to Psalm 117. So in Psalm 113, as the process begins, we are introduced to a barren woman who gives birth. In the Exodus narrative, this means that Egypt and the wilderness, who are together imagined as barren women, give birth to the nation of Israel, who is born into the land of promise. This is their future, the fulfillment of promise. But what is more, we saw that this was fulfilled primarily, actually, in the person of Jesus Christ. For as Matthew says in his gospel, when Hosea said, out of Egypt I have called my son, that Exodus reference wasn't just history, it was also prophecy. Matthew claims that when Egypt comes, I'm sorry, when Israel comes up out of Egypt, it is a type and foreshadow of the Christ child. Being born of that most barren woman, Mary, and coming up out of Egypt. In like manner, that future has a home in it. That just as we come up out of sin and slavery, death and sorrow in Christ to a rich future, that future is a new home. In Psalm 114, we see that Israel comes up out of a land of Egypt, a land of foreign tongues where hallelujah is not said. And what do they do? They, they pass through rivers and seas. They pass through mountains. And all the creation quakes and flees from them. In this way, they show the presence of God with them. That the creation is groaning, longing for the birth of this Israel. Longing for Israel to come forth from the barren woman. And so as Israel comes forth into the creation, the creation is longing to be the new heavens and the new earth in which Christ our righteousness dwells. Then in Psalm 115, we see that that new heavens and that new earth is to be populated by those who have life, those who bear children, those who are not like their idols, lifeless, but rather are like Israel who are fruitful and multiply filling the land, the land of the new heavens and the new earth. But then we get to Psalm 116, which quite frankly, and actually one of us, one of you, talked to me about this last Sunday. 116 really seems like the psalm at which this story ought to end, doesn't it? That we should come to 116, and and we look at 116, and it says, and you're going to die. But in Christ, there's resurrection. And we go, all right, we've reached the end of the story. We are walking through the story of birth, 113. Walking through the story of finding a home, 114. Of finding a family, 115. Of surviving death, 116. Through resurrection. Why then do we have 117 and 118? Doesn't it seem like the story has come to an end? 
No, what 117 is trying to teach us very importantly is that in as much as God in Christ has called you to worship and called you to a life of worship, He has called you to glorify and enjoy Him as your chief end, as your highest purpose, as your reason for being, your reason for living. Why did you wake up this morning? So that you might praise the Lord. Why did you come here today? That you might praise the Lord. Why do you have food and clothing and shelter and friends and family? That you might praise the Lord. There is this tremendous awakening within us that Psalm 117 is calling to us. We can survey every element of our existence. Including the sin and the sorrow. And discover... That God's purpose in our life is to produce in our lips, hallelujah. Did you guys catch that? His goal for your life. Why did he make humans? Why are we here? What is the chief end of man? We have this great philosophical confluence, to use the Western Pennsylvania word. Where all of a sudden comes together the great philosophical questions into one answer. Why? So that we might glorify and enjoy Him. So that we might say, Hallelujah. But notice, friends, it's a first person plural pronoun. So that we might say, Hallelujah. You see in verse 1, this call to worship that is indeed the defining feature of the life of a Christian. We worship God. That's who we are. What is First RP all about? Worshiping God. Saying hallelujah. And my friends, anything not rooted in that should go. It is our chief end. To glorify and enjoy Him. We are called together as a church to be worshipers. It's our identifier. But the psalm is actually not directed to us. Did you see that? This is a call to worship, but not to the church. Notice again verse 1. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Praise Him, all you peoples. This is a call to worship to those who are outside the church. This is an evangelistic call to worship. That when Israel came up out of Egypt, it wasn't simply for Israel's sake. When Israel was kept safe in the wilderness, it wasn't simply for Israel's sake. No, Israel was to be a light to the nations, a means by which all Gentiles and peoples would be brought in to the worship of God. Now, that missionary enterprise was not very forthcoming or explicit in the Old Testament. It really comes to the fore in Acts, right? We really see that in the New Testament. But it's not absent from the Old Let me give you one illustration. It is arguably my favorite passage when it comes to understanding evangelism or church planting. When I was eight years in the Midwest Presbytery in Oklahoma planting a church and helping the Midwest Presbytery plant other churches, my mentor and I would meet every month to pray for our church planting efforts. And as we would pray for each other and for the church plants of our presbytery, we kept coming back to the same passage, the same language. 
The prophet Isaiah, who says to the suffering servant in the voice of the Father, it is too late a thing that you should raise up the fallen standard of Israel. I will make you a light to the nations. You see, when the Father turns to the Son and says of Him, go and die for my people's sins and save them, the Father likewise says, this salvation is too great, too good, too glorious to keep it in the walls of one little church. This is a salvation that belongs at the ends of the earth. This is a salvation that belongs going to the utter ends of the earth. It is a salvation too good to keep in these pews. That's what the call to worship here means. Praise the Lord, but not just us. That we would praise the Lord in the company of Gentiles and peoples. We would call to them. To put it this way, if you're following along in your bulletins, this is going to be me summing up point two. Not only are we called to worship, but we are to call others to worship. That we are not only those who are called by the grace of God to come and glorify God, but we are those who through the grace of God call others to glorify God. We become instruments of His grace and those who call others to worship. This is a daunting thing, isn't it? It's a frightening thing, isn't it? I remember affectionately a different mentor of mine once being asked or told, frankly, to lead in prayer. And when he was hesitant, the man who had asked him said to him, look, a pastor needs to be ready to pray, preach, or die at any time. And my mentor as a young seminarian said, I'll take die. It's a frightening thing to offer to the world about whom we know much whose hatred we have felt, whose opposition is rising and is keen. No longer is your evangelism quaint or old-fashioned. It is hateful. You are living in an age where a call to worship is now an act of war. Now, lest I make it overly dramatic, calls to worship are always acts of war. They have been throughout all ages of the world. That's what we saw in Psalm 149, our call to worship. That when we have the praises of God pouring out our throats, we have a sharp two-edged sword in our hands. The metaphor is the same. Armed with the praises of God, we conquer kingdoms. The call to worship is an act of warfare. It is the church of Jesus Christ summoning the world to worship Christ with us. This is what the psalmist would have us do. This way, Psalm 117 is fitting in following Psalms 113 through 116. Because in having surveyed the work of God on our behalf, we have awoken to the reality that the work of God is too great to keep to ourselves. We should call others to worship Him and to come and enjoy that work as well. And for that reason, there's verse 2. Verse 2, which says to us the expanse and reach of his good works. Now, in order to be motivated to actually share the gospel with others, in order to be motivated to call others to worship, indeed to be motivated to accept the call to worship ourselves, 
The psalmist, I hope you have noticed from all the call to worships that we've been using through the last several weeks, months, years, always roots the command, come and worship, into a reason. And here Psalm 117 roots it in this reason, two reasons. Number one, for his merciful kindness is great toward us. This word, merciful kindness, is the one we often see in scriptures as steadfast love. His steadfast love is great toward us. This first reason to worship God and to ask others to worship with us is preeminent. It is mentioned first, not haphazardly, but because it is the first and greatest reason to worship God. His love is supreme. It's supreme as a motivator of worship. It's supreme in identifying who we are and what we ought to be about. His steadfast love is great toward us. I want you to see three ideas behind this love. First, it is a steadfast love. It is a faithful love, an unfailing love. It is the word that is always associated with the covenant. God has promised, I will love you. And that love that he has pledged to you in his covenant, that he has promised to you in his word, is a faithful love, a steadfast love, an unfailing love. You can't break it. Now, as your pastor, I feel the responsibility to pause and say to you again, because often I'm having these conversations with you. Beloved, are you hearing me? You can't break This love. You can't exhaust it. Do you know how many times you've said, I'm sorry, please forgive me? Do you know how many times he's willing to say yes? Way more than you'll ever say. You can't exhaust this love. You can't break this love. It is steadfast love. It is unfailing love. It is love that has been running this world and saving sinners since before Abraham was. It is love that cannot end, that cannot quit, that cannot leave. Dear saints, are you listening? Because you need this. It's why we worship. We worship because his love is steadfast and unfailing. It's a love you can fall back into and be fearless. It's a love you can extend to every individual in your world. And never worry if it's going to run out or be insufficient. I, don't, I, I want to tell this story, but I don't want to like pick on anyone. I recently heard a message from a learning preacher who said a father's love is infinite. And I said, boy, you don't know this father. But he's right about the one father. His love is infinite. You cannot find the frontier. You cannot reach the edge. His love is infinite and unchangeable. He'll never let you go. His love is infinite, unchangeable. It is eternal. It'll never quit. It'll never give up. It is steadfast love. Secondly, it is steadfast love that is great. Doesn't that sound suddenly like insufficient? 
Doesn't that sound like a really small word next to the steadfast love of the Lord? But the psalmist makes no mistake. He means to impress upon us, indeed to overwhelm us, to crush us beneath this great expansive vision of the love of God. Have you ever stood on the top of a 14,000 foot mountain and stared out for miles and miles across the plains of America? Farther than that horizon is the love of God. Have you ever watched the videos of the submarines going down and investigating the Mariana Trench in the depths of the Atlantic Ocean? Deeper is the love of God. This love of God is great. That's not a small word. That is a horizon-expanding, vision-destroying word. We walk around like the love of God is something we can stick in our pockets. We walk around like the love of God is something we can wear around our necks. My friends, we bathe in an ocean of love. We live and walk and work in a world of love. There is no shortness to his love, no insufficiency for his love. You can be sure that anytime you want to share the love of God with someone else, it will be there and it will be sufficient. This has been my pastoral experience. That every time I have encountered an experience for which I have said I am insufficient, I have found his love sufficient. But thirdly, his steadfast love is great toward us. I'll give you fair warning. I haven't gone through this section without crying yet. The psalmist says that he has steadfast, infinite, eternal, and unfailing love that is great, enormous, endless, boundless, relentless, inexhaustible. And it has a direction. He doesn't love generally. He doesn't love indiscriminately. He doesn't love vaguely. He loves you. Amen. He loves you. Every single one of you making eye contact with me or not. I beg you to hear this. His steadfast love is great. Toward you. He knows your name. He knows the hairs on your head. He knows the number of beatings your heart will ever beat before it beats no more. He knows the number of sunrises in your life and the number of sunsets. He knows your fears, your sins, your sorrows. And his love is greater than the sum total of all that. Because it says his love is great toward us. Yes, he loves you, each individual who is in Christ. But he loves us in Christ together. That we should share love with one another, that we should share love with the world. He doesn't just love the people who showed up today. He loves some of those people we passed and ignored this morning. He loves some of those people whose names we don't even know. He loves us. It's a great big love. It's a lot bigger than these pews. And if that love were to actually leak into this city, and if they were actually to drink from that well and not reject it in rebellion, 
But if they were to, hum- in humility, receive this love, my friends, we'd run out of pews like that. It's a great love. A steadfast love. And it's toward us. It's for us to have and to hold and to share with one another enriched in this. But secondly, as if that wasn't enough. As if we couldn't just end the sermon right there and just say, you get it? He has a love that's so big you should share the gospel with everybody. He has a love that is so big you should show up and worship him every week. He has a love that is so big that that and that alone is enough for everything. He gives us a second reason. Verse 2, the truth of the Lord endures forever. Some translations will say the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. The focus that is here is now external. Just as the love of God is that internal condition in which he is kindly disposed to us, his love is that, that motivational impulse that he has toward us, that he means to do us well, he wants to do us well, he will indeed do us well. He delights in us and glories in his grace toward us. But now, secondly, his truth and faithfulness is forever. That is that the word he has spoken to us is permanent. Not only is his kind-hearted disposition without frontier or bound, so the word that he has spoken, as the psalmist said, has a breadth that is very great. When I say to you, hopefully in this poignant and poetic way, this is the greatness of the love of God. I don't mean it in, an object, in a subjective, experiential, emotional sense inside, though hopefully you felt that. I mean very concretely and specifically in his scriptures. Here is the love of God in Christ. I mean it specifically in the waters of baptism, which we bear witness to, and covenant one to another in. I mean it in our fellowship and our love for another. God's love does not remain abstract. God's love is expressed in concrete and visible and tangible ways. And in like manner, the partakers of his love must express that love as he does. Let us speak the truth to one another. What is the drive and the engine of truth in a world that loves lies? Love. I have been so greatly loved by an insurmountable love in Christ that I am willing to speak the truth regardless of the consequences. I don't need your love. I've got God's. I am willing to speak the truth not only powerfully, courageously, recklessly, I'm willing to speak the truth kindly and humbly. Because my goal isn't to fill my pews. Because my goal isn't to collar people into Christ. My goal is to rightly express the love with which I have been loved. He is faithful in all his dealings toward us. Rightly expressing his love in truth and faithfulness forever. We have always found his love to be the same. We have always found his love 
to be humble and kind. His love to be gracious in abundance. And so in like manner, we call the world around us to worship him. We say, come, worship. And they say, why should I wake up on Sunday morning? Why should I give up my Sunday activities? Why should I come and worship him? And we say, I have this little thing called love. Let me tell you about it. Let me show it to you. Of course, if we were to take verse 2 and put it together much more succinctly than I have, verse line says love and the second line says truth. And this is the title of Harry, not Harry. I always do that. This is the title of Metzger, not Harry. Uh, what is his first name, though? That's why I would say Harry, because I can't remember the other guy's first name. Anyway, this is the name of Dr. Metzger's book on evangelism. Tell the truth in love. That's what evangelism is. We tell the truth in love. We praise the Lord. We say hallelujah. And we tell others, come say hallelujah with me. We say, here's why I say hallelujah. And ask them, will you come say hallelujah with me? This is the extraordinary love of God at work in us and through us. I've told you on occasion about my grandmother. My grandmother loved to feed people. In fact, you didn't have to be a people. She loved to feed things. She fed all the ducks and the geese and the sheep and the cows and the chickens. She even fed the ones that didn't belong on her farm. They just showed up because they knew there was this weird old lady who loved to feed things. She loved to feed her children and her grandchildren. But she also fed the children and grandchildren who lived in the houses down the road because they knew there was a weird old lady who loved to feed people. She would make entire lasagnas, stick them in the freezer so that if anybody popped by, she could just pop them in the oven and have lasagnas for people who pop by. But of course, if you popped by, she would say, frozen lasagna is too good for you. I'll make you something new. And so her freezer over the years just increased the number of frozen lasagnas she never used. She loved to feed people. And she just had an abundance of food and of love. You couldn't be hungry in her presence. It was not allowed. My grandmother doesn't feed anyone anymore. She's old. She's tired. She's weak. But for those glorious years, and in my wonderful memory, that story lives on as a wonderful illustration of our God, who doesn't get old, who doesn't get tired. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He had enough love for you yesterday. He has enough for today. He had enough love for you yesterday and today. He'll have enough love for you tomorrow. In fact, he'll have enough love for the whole world. There is enough in Christ to go around. Jesus is enough for the whole world. So let's pray for others to know him. Let me give you one last specific challenge. This is what I did to the youth at White Lake too. So you guys get it too. Please pray for them by name. 
Please make this psalm your prayer for your loved ones. Pray by name for those you want to know Psalm 117 is true. And pray Psalm 117 for those people. Jesus is enough for them. He really is. So pray for them to know him. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful psalm. We thank you for the great riches we have in Christ. A love that never ends. A truth that never fails. A hope that goes beyond the veil of death into the heavens forever. And we give you thanks, O God, that this is the legacy of the church. That though we rise up with futures in our hearts, though we look forward to a home and a family and Though death is robbed by resurrection, the church lives on and on, being called to worship and calling others to worship. And this is our legacy to the world. Oh God, help us to pray for our world, to pray for them to know Christ and the superlative abundance of grace that is in Christ. Oh God, make this our prayer. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well,